Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by George Southcombe, author of The Culture of Dissent in Restoration England, The Wonders of the Lord published in 2019 by Boydell Press. Dr. Southcombe is the director of the Sarah Lawrence Program and a historian at Wadham College, Oxford. George, congratulations on the book and welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Ryan. Great to be here. Well, before we get into your wonderful book, The Culture of Dissent and Restoration England, I wonder, could you share a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I'm well. I'm the director of the Sarah Lawrence Program uh, in Wadham College in Oxford, which is one of the University of Oxford's visiting student programs. Um, and alongside that, I work um, as a historian, predominantly of the 17th century. I've worked mainly on 17th century religion. I'm also uh, in Sarah Lawrence, associated with the Faculty of History there and the Faculty of Literature. And a lot of my work has been engaged in trying to think about the relationship between literature and history and theology. Well, that's wonderful. So by way of background into this book that you've written, I wonder if you can help give us a little background into this period of the Restoration. Your book includes case studies of a Presbyterian, a General Baptist, a Quaker, a Fifth Monarchist, Independent, a particular Baptist, and and we'll get into all those differences uh, between these various dissenters in, in, as we go along. But what happened with this restoration that would have brought together such a diverse cast of figures into the same book? Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe in, in a sense, if I answer that um, by talking a bit about the book's, about the book's genesis, I think, which sort of right. explains why I ended up in the late 17th century. Um I mean, in some ways, I think that the origins of the book can be sort of pinpointed bizarrely precisely, actually. I think it really has its origins in, um, uh, in, in 1998 when I was speaking to my then undergraduate tutor, uh, Nigel Smith, who's now a, a professor at Princeton, who done extraordinary work on Andrew Marvel. And I was thinking about writing an undergraduate thesis, and I said to Nigel, oh, I've got this idea. I thought I'd write something about um, the development of Foucault's thought in a particular way. And Nigel said, uh, don't be stupid. You don't know anything about that. Um, there's this man called Robert Everard, who is um, starts off as a general Baptist, um, is, a, is a political agitator related to those, those called the levelers. Um, and in the late 17th century, he becomes a Roman Catholic. Why don't you write about him? So I went away and said, OK, I'll, I'll write about him. I mean, Everard, in fact, doesn't then make it very much into this book. But that's the origins of this book, I think, came from um, a period that I was really interested in as an undergraduate, which was the mid-17th century. It was the period of the Civil War. 
Uh, it was a period of the English Revolution. And I was particularly interested in the radical religious sects of that period and the people who were really covered by uh, Christopher Hill's book, The World Turned Upside Down. That was kind of a touchstone for me. And I think in, in that original work on Everard, what I started to think about was what happens to these people after that mid-century revolution? What becomes of them in the late 17th century? So as your listeners you know, may well know, what we have in England is in from well, the 30th of January 1649, Charles I is executed. And at that point, um, England embarks on 11 years of kingless government. Um, in 1660, that ends. The monarch returns, Charles II returns. And a whole series of questions are opened up about what England will then look like politically and religiously. During the period of, of civil war and revolution, um, uh, a number of sort of radical religious groups have either come into being or have developed and developed in, in number. Um, so the Quakers most famously have actually come into being. Um, Baptist numbers have grown dramatically. And come 1660, then this this big question over what should be done about these groups? What should the religious situation in England be? Should it return to being a, um, a, a national church, which theoretically everyone should be a member of, Church of England, or should it allow any degree of, of toleration outside of that? And I think that's really what I became fascinated by was the question of then how the members of these um, these groups responded to that that moment of 1660 and responded to what then um, uh, what then occurred and of course what does occur in, in 1660 1662 is the religious settlement is worked out and it's established that actually this isn't going to be a tolerationist society. This is a society which is going to re-establish an exclusionary Church of England, and it's going to leave a number of groups outside of it and, and technically prescribe them. Um, and so much of what I became interested in is how these groups then deal with these questions um, of living in a persecutory society. It's, it's very interesting. Now, your, your first and largest chapter centers on the, the a satirical Presbyterian poet named Robert Wilde. Oh, what a colorful chapter this one is. It was so, so many um, juicy quotes throughout. Now, he might be the dissenter who would be perhaps the least thrilled to have been grouped together with some of these other figures, but who, who was Robert Wilde and, and what did the dramatic turn of events in 1660 and 1661 do to launch his literary profile. Yeah, I, I think, as you say, the, the biggest chapter in this book is on Robert Wilde, and it really investigates Wilde as a member of a group that I haven't mentioned thus far, and that, that was the Presbyterians. Now, the Presbyterians in 1660 are in a very peculiar position. When we talk about Presbyterians in Restoration England, we tend not to mean as we would earlier, 
those who are wedded necessary to a specific Presbyterian form of church government. That is to say, by 1660, a number of Presbyterians had accepted that they could work within an Episcopal system. So really what we're often using Presbyterian to mean is to talk about the heirs of those we were previously called Puritans. And Wilde is um, my, you know, my individual who I investigate within that tradition. So in some ways he's coming out of a, a, a Puritan tradition. And the Presbyterian position in 1660 is really quite different I think, from that of a number of the other groups. I mean, for the Quakers, for the Baptists, the question really is whether they're going to be tolerated, whether they might be allowed to continue to worship outside of the national church. The Presbyterian position is different. The Presbyterians are interested from 1660 to 1662, and indeed thereafter, in whether they might be in some ways comprehended within the Church of England. That's to say whether they actually still could play a role within the Church of England. And much of the negotiation from 1660 to 62 is about whether the Presbyterians are going to be given a place within this church. And what ultimately happens in 1662 is the passing of legislation, the Act of Uniformity, which in fact thrusts a number of them outside of this church. Around 2,000 ministers by 1662 lose their positions um, within the church. They're excluded from it. And most of those we would think of as Presbyterians. So I then use Robert Wilde in part to investigate, really, the, the Presbyterian identity. And while he was a Presbyterian minister, there are lots of things about him which are then peculiar. And one of those things is, as you say, that he actually writes a large amount of satirical verse. And the satire that Robert Wilde engages in is, again, very outside of what we have stereotypically come to think of as a Puritan tradition. Wilde's verse is is, uh, frequently scatological. It's very robust. Um, It's um, frequently engaged in um, very sort of direct ad hominem attacks. And so I wanted to use Wilde's example really to explore how the Presbyterians continued in part, or how one of the the Presbyterians in a very um, public way continued to try to um, engage with the religious authorities of England And I wanted also to think about how Presbyterian identity itself came to be formed. So how did this group who in, you know, in in the early Stuart church, we would have thought of the the Puritan tradition as a part of the Church of England, very fundamentally embedded within it under, under James. How did that tradition start to form into a distinct identity outside of the church? And I try to use an analysis of Wilde's poetry as a way of thinking about some of those questions. So one of the things that I suggest is that um, that what Robert Wilde's poetry provides is a, um, a set of materials which Presbyterians can laugh at together. And I suggest that partly that process of laughing together is what then starts actually um, to um, help form a particular kind of Presbyterian identity.
That's right. One of the themes that runs throughout this chapter on Wild um, is the the paradox of Restoration Presbyterians, a paradox that Wild himself seems to embody. He's he's constantly having to pitch himself as as a loyalist while dissenting and in favor of a national church while an opponent of toleration and holding conventicles. I mean, so much, um, so much interest there, but yeah, even I loved how you end this chapter with his immediate memory being a paradox by the turn of the century. It seems that people couldn't reconcile his popularity with his Presbyterianism. Could could you unpack this mm-hmm. paradox of the Presbyterian position and, and wilds legacy? Mm, I mean, that, that, so I think, I think that's absolutely right. By the time we get into the 18th century, the Presbyterians themselves are trying to forget people like like Robert Wilde. Um, and actually, I think that's had a much longer term uh, historiographical impact, actually. I think a lot of our stereotypes today of the Puritan in general is of the, the Puritan killjoy. It's the mm. Puritan who is, uh, you know, in general, um, hypocritical and is also, you know, um, loathes all forms of fun. I mean, that classic definition, the suspicion that somebody somewhere might be having fun. And that's a stereotype of the Puritan, which is partly forged by their enemies. But one of the things that I want to suggest is it's also forged within the the Presbyterian tradition itself. And that's really, I think, what happens to Robert Wilde is that once we get into the 18th century, you like toleration has been achieved and what the presbyterians are doing is to announce themselves um as in i mean in part what they're highlighting i suppose is that is their kind of serious um intellectual credentials and the seriousness of their ministry and in those terms, they engage, I think, in a kind of sanitizing exercise where they remove the people like wild and wild sort of satire from their history. That all starts to look a bit antagonistic. It all starts to look a bit um, uncontrolled in some ways. And so by the time we get into the 18th century, when people write about wild, if they write about him at all, they emphasize his godly credentials. They emphasize him as a giver of sermons. They say, remarkably little about him as a satirical poet. Mm. Well, the next case study in in your book features the Lincolnshire uh, General Baptist Thomas Grantham. And unlike Wilde, Grantham seems a little less interested in mincing words or amusing his readers. He seems quite sincere. Uh, Not that not that Wilde wasn't sincere, Mm. but quite uh, plain spoken in his in his uh, style. What, what does Grantham's style contribute to this print culture of dissenting religion? So Grantham, uh, I think you're right, starts off certainly as a very direct and very robust critic of the restored Church of England. Yeah. And that comes through very strongly in his early work. He writes a, a, a poem called the, the Prisoner Against the Prelate, in which he, in essence, associates um, the Church of England with the Whore of Babylon. And it, it, as you say, in terms of directiveness, that's, um, that's as direct as it gets. I mean, ju- just as a side note, that poem is, is fascinating um, in itself. I think it's in, in many ways it's a kind of early example of the, um, 
alien sends a postcard home genre in that one of the things that Grantham does in it is he imagines going to an Anglican service, but as someone who has no idea what's going on, and he describes it purely in terms of what the people seem to be doing. He says it's very strange, you know, these two men wander up and down, and then they stop and they bow at this wooden board, and um, and, and what it means, I've no idea. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's got its own satirical edge, but it, it, I, it, it's very, very robust. It's attack on the Church of England. I suppose what interested me then about Grantham is, is to a degree, the movement you get in his life story from that early direct style to actually by the end of his life the opening up of dialogues with a number actually within the Church of England and the forging of some kind of bonds of mutual respect. And and by the time we get to the end of his life, um, he's actually, I think, developed um, quite strong links, perhaps even in in friendships with some within the Church of England. So I, I think one of the things that interests me about Grantham was trying to tell that story of how over the restoration you get a move from in terms of how people how someone is thinking about his position within within uh, within the religious landscape um, and how he's moving perhaps to a kind of more um, uh, ameliorative position really by the end of his life. Yeah, that you when you note um, kind of that change in Grantham, one of the themes that I, I found really interesting there, which I'm, I'm curious if you could unpack a little, it, it mm. seems that one of the things that Grantham uh, that allows for some of these friendships or some of his um, this kind of erratic disposition was a growing kind of anti-Calvinism mm. within the the, mm. the Restoration Church. Is, mm. is that, do you think that that's part of what caused Grantham in particular as a, as a general Baptist to find um, that maybe he shared he shared something in common with these anti-Puritans. Yeah, I think I mean that is it's certainly it's an argument I want I want to make, and it does seem to me if we're looking for one of the keys which might explain why it is that a general Baptist can come to start to engage in dialogues with someone in Church of England, I think there is that kind of. A, a possibility, at least, of sharing ideas about salvation. And on that level, I mean, pe- people have talked about this and have talked about it often in relation to the late Elizabethan and early Stuart Church. People have often talked about how Puritans, because they can share in an overall Calvinist perspective on salvation with another within the church, are despite their criticisms of the church, able to, in that case, remain within it. Mm-hmm. Now, Grantham obviously has no interest in becoming a member of the Church of England, right. but I think a similar level of explanation is probably right in terms of um, interpreting how he's able to come to have these dialogues with those within the Church of England. And I think a certain amount of that comes out of yeah, a, a shared set of ideas about salvation, but rather than the like sort of Calvinism that we see with, with Puritanism and um, in the Church of England under Elizabeth and James, it's in fact the anti-Calvinism which can act as that kind of binding force. Um, and I, I think that's part of it. I mean, I would add 
to that as well. I think that the other um, the the other thing which it, it seems to me it one of the things which it seems to me which is in many ways very pervasive but is almost so pervasive that we don't notice it is is the broader language of charity is the i you know the the christ injunction love thy neighbor as thyself and i think that is such a kind of powerful um requirement that that opens up some of the parameters again in which these dialogues can take place is that that's they often when writing against each other they will i mean grantham towards the end of his life engages in a dispute with a church of england minister called john Connold, and in many ways that dispute is is quite fraught and in many ways they remain profoundly divided on some key questions but they also will relatively often sort of sign off to each other, I remain in charity with you. And the temptation is obviously just to write that off and say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just convention. But actually, I think there's a danger in that. I think actually that that what is a convention actually probably has a deeper power for these men there. Well, one of Grantham's sparring partners mm. uh, who conveniently normalized some of his theological extremes, or at least created the uh, the comparison with himself that he wanted, was the Quaker John Whited, uh, who's the subject of your third chapter. So one of the themes that comes up in this chapter addresses this question in the literature about continuity and discontinuity between mm-hmm. pre- and post-Restoration Quakerism. What's at stake with that kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, a historiographical debate. Yeah, so I, I think the Quakers, in terms of previous um, historians who have been interested in this question of what, what changed in the Restoration, the Quakers have had a particular historiography there. Yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, the and it's quite a crude caricature, it's quite interesting in a sense when you reread it, you find that actually most of the people expressing these views weren't quite as crude as this, but the kind of caricature of that historiography is the Quakers are born in civil war, they're born in a moment of extraordinary radicalism, the inner-like theology that they espouse legitimates extraordinary radical action. Come the Restoration, they have this powerful experience of defeat, they um, announce the peace principle, so they announce the principle of pacifism, of peace in all circumstances, and in essence, they withdraw into themselves and live uh, lives of kind of um, internal um, uh, spiritual quietude. And that, that, as I say, that's the kind of how the Quakers, in broad terms, were often written about. So in terms of what I was interested in, the restoration for the Quakers was often, was probably of all groups, since the most transformative moment. And I suppose one of the things I wanted to do was to use John Whitehead's example to test that a bit and to suggest that actually we do see some quite striking continuities in Quaker behaviour and Quaker activism across the boundary of 1660, and that if there is a major transformation in the movement, actually it comes later. Now, I, I should say that that chapter, I think, in particular, um, you know, certainly I wanted to make make the argument um, 
as I say, for kind of continuity in Quaker political activism. I think, and I, I think you've had her on your podcast, but I think my old doctoral student, um, Madeline Pennington, her new book, I think that takes that question actually to a completely different level of sophistication. And I think we have a kind of broad, um, uh, you know, we, we absolutely have a broad agreement on, in essence, what's happening. But Madeline's level of explanation for what is happening is of an entirely no more developed kind than the one the one that I offer really um and and so you know partly I would actually point anyone particularly interested in Quaker transformation in that direction now your your last major chapter I found really artful with with an unexpected juxtaposition of the fifth monarchist uh, Vavasor Powell and the particular Baptist Benjamin Keach uh, it was a very interesting pairing uh, even though these two figures are often treated very differently in the literature. So um, could you talk a little bit about their, the shared, uh, the shared apocalypticism that mm-hmm. united these two and, and uh, what that tells us about uh, popular reformation or popular reformed theology mm-hmm. during the, the restoration period? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, so you're, you're, Right, that I wanted to pair them together because they've been treated previously really quite differently. So Vavasor Powell has been treated as, and in many ways quite rightly, as a leading fifth monarchist thinker. So the fifth monarchists were those who not only believed that Christ would rule for a thousand years with his saints, um, or that the saints would rule for a thousand years and then Christ would arrive as some sort of debate over that specific point but they not only believed that they also believed that they could do things to make that happen to to prepare the ground for christ coming in the here and now and powell is often being written about in in many ways as emblematic of that tradition which is a in some ways is fairly obviously a profoundly radical political tradition Benjamin Keach has far more generally been written about um, as a, a, a serious um, theologian within the particular Baptist tradition, which he was, as the developer of a significant Baptist hymn tradition. And in many ways, much of the focus on Keach has been on his ministry and on his pastoral ministry and on his theology. And what I wanted to do was to bring them together and to use the example of each in some ways to challenge um, that historiography. So I wanted to say on the one hand that Vavasor Powell actually needs to be understood as a tremendously um, vigorous pastoral minister and someone who once he ends up imprisoned in the restoration uses print to continue his pastoral ministry. And I also wanted to say of Keach that while his ministry was tremendously important, he also continued this line of extraordinary apocalyptic thinking, which reaches an absolute apogee for him with the coming of William of Orange, the coming of William III, which he writes about in intense millenarian terms and sort of announces his coming within an entire apocalyptic framework. And uh, I suppose why I was one of the things I was trying to do was to explain why the position of dissenters became so complicated in in the Restoration 
And it was partly because they they had this possibility of dual identities, where you had someone like Keach, someone who was a very popular um, uh, very popular writer on on theological issues, um, somebody who poured a lot of time into producing texts, particularly for the education of the young, and at the same time, someone who saw the world through an intense apocalyptic. Um, uh, with, with intensely apocalyptic vision. And you know, so you look, I mean, if you imagine coming across a man like Benjamin Keach, you, you are coming across someone who you think on the one hand is potentially doing valuable educational work, and on the other hand has an intensely radical political theology. And I think that helps to explain a lot of the ways in which you can both find people willing to open up dialogues with dissenters, and you also find people in extraordinary fear of them. I mean, just just finally coming back, I I think the final part of your question asked about Keech as a popularizer, really, of theology. And that does seem to me a very interesting aspect of Keech's work. So Keech writes um, uh, a few kind of epic poems, really, in which he attempts to weave particular stories in verse, but as ways of talking in quite a lot of detail about fine points of reformed theology. And so one of the things I think that Keach does is to provide in Restoration England kind of accessible texts within the reform tradition. And once you look at Keech's sale figure, sales figures, and if you want to look at the number of editions his works go through, it's very clear that he is not only being read by other people within his religious tradition. It actually becomes very clear that in some ways, I think Keech is one of the most, is a significant voice within the reform tradition and someone who is disseminating that tradition in um accessible ways um, throughout the Restoration period. And I I suppose if you put that together with something we talked about earlier, i.e. the um, anti-Calvinism within a number of ministers within the Church of England, I think in part, if we think about who is it keeping the Reformed tradition going in Restoration England, yes, certainly we can find some Anglican ministers doing that. But also we have a, a, the particular Baptist tradition, which is reaching a far wider audience than simply other particular Baptists. Well, we've covered this wide range of figures and these case studies that you've uh, chosen to show this landscape of mm-hmm. uh, dissenting religion. So I wonder um, if... Uh, if we look at the landscape as a whole, what are some of the uh, big picture takeaways uh, that that we can draw from um, what the culture of dissent and restoration England was? I think if if we want to think in general terms, and I think in general terms about some of the things which the book demonstrates, I think there's a significant point and a very obvious one about the continued importance of print and print culture. Mm. And I I say 
that that's obvious, and I think it is. I think probably in, in recent years we've become very used to writing about and thinking about the continued significance of manuscript culture. And I think that's really important. I think that is, certainly is, is the case. And I'm thinking there, I suppose, of work by people like Harold Love on scribal publication. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of the ways in which print could provide a really powerful um, mechanism for disseminating views in the late 17th century, and particularly for disseminating the views of those who are um, outside of the religious mainstream. And, and so I think that's one of the, the big things which comes comes through. I think the other thing which comes through is, is really the point that I touched upon before in talking about Benjamin Keach, but is that sense of the, the potential dual identities of dissent. So how you can have those who um, are seen on the one hand to be potentially providing important um, and in some kind of general sense important Christian works within a society at the same time as potentially representing a, a political tradition which if we think about late restoration um, or if we think about restoration England as being the time in which political parties come into being for the Tories dissent you know, represents everything that they are frightened of and and I think it's actually quite significant that the Tories aren't just making that up. I mean, certainly they're, they're stereotyping, but they're not just fabricating this. They are actually talking about groups whose political understanding is really fundamentally different from theirs. Um, and so I think that way in which you have the kind of pastoral and political traditions running together helps to explain a lot of why the issue of dissent remains so controversial in this period. Yeah, I loved the, uh, I think it was in your chapter on Robert Wilde that he had an afterlife as a, as a Whig, uh, a Whig poet that he, <laughs> you couldn't have hardly imagined at the time, but he, his, um, uh, his, his satirical verse uh, helped them build their identity. Yeah. So more, there's there's plenty more in the book that we we haven't covered that I, I hope people can go pick up their copy of the culture of descent and restoration England. Now, George, now that this project is over, what are you working on next? Um, so I'm looking at um, I, I suppose two things. I've got a discrete project which I'm uh, completing with my friend Alexandra Guider, um, who's at Jesus College in Oxford. And we're reinvestigating together the origins of the 1563 witchcraft statute uh, in England. And we're trying to locate the development of that statute in broader debates about church and state in the mid 16th century. So that, that's one thing. And then the larger sort of ongoing thing, and, and this I think really was sparked, I suppose, particularly by the work I, I did on Wilde, but then the broader interest I developed in satire. So I'm just embarking on a much larger project on a, on a history of laughter um, and an attempt to um, track really changes in um, what people laughed at, how laughter was thought about, and how that might have, have shifted over the early modern period. Well, that sounds like an absolutely uh, fascinating project. I can't wait to follow uh, the development of it, and maybe we can have you back on um, 
whenever that comes to to press. Well, uh, George, thank you so much for your uh, the generosity of your time to come and, and speak with us. Uh, the book is The Culture of Descent in Restoration England, The Wonders of the Lord. You can get your copy now from Boydell Press. George, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ryan. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. You can visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can find over 10,000 episodes on books ranging in any, any interest that you might have. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.